Hello and welcome to Asia Bridge, the podcast where we present the best of Asia society programs in 15 minutes or less. I'm Matt Schiavenza. In today's episode, we talk about Iran. Best known in the United States for its nuclear weapons program, Iran is also a youthful, dynamic society that is evolving in unpredictable ways. Last December, protests erupted in several Iranian cities over popular dissatisfaction with the country's economy, which has failed to grow as quickly as Iranian people have hoped. Protests in Iran aren't new. Batrida Parsi, founder of the National Iranian American Council and one of this country's leading experts on Iran, argues that changes are afoot. He spoke at Asia Society in March with our executive vice president, Tom Nagorski. One of the fascinating things with these protests, not just because they were so different, they started differently from the Green Movement, very different demographic. Part of the reason many people missed this coming, myself included, was because it was driven by a completely different demographic, a demographic that had not been at the center of Iran's political development. It's not for the, the young last... people only. I mean, it's not... Well, it was actually very, uh, very young people, mainly young males, but from the working class, uh, not politically experienced and involved very different from the Green Movement. I spoke to organizers of the Green Movement throughout this, and they were taken by surprise of this. They were on the sidelines. They were even somewhat skeptical, mm -hmm. not because they disagreed with the frustrations. In fact, they were very much in agreement that, um, uh, and sympathizing with those frustrations. But they were worried because they saw a leaderless uh, and politically unorganized movement in a post-Syria scenario, which caused them to be very worried that where could this lead? Could this lead to uh, a, a very uh, violent response from the government, which then would be able to fuel something very negative? Uh, but the most, not the most, but one of the more fascinating things in all of this was that not only were there main differences between the Green Movement and these protests, but the response of the government was also very, very different. Now, clearly, there was repression. Uh, more than 25 people were killed in just a few couple of days, and many of them were killed in prison. The official story is that they all committed suicide in prison. I find that hard to believe. Um, so clearly, there was a, a, a tremendous amount of repression. We didn't see as much of it because um, we didn't have a scenario unlike the Green Movement in which it was happening around an election. So there were a lot of Western journalists on the ground. Uh, this time around, that wasn't the case, so um, the, the visuals were not there, but clearly there was repression. But nevertheless, if you take a look at how the Iranian government reacted in 2009 after the fraudulent elections, there was uh, a clear accusation that everyone in the Green Movement is just working on behalf of a foreign government, that this is a big conspiracy. This time around, you definitely had some folks on the conservative side who were saying this. But the Rouhani government came out with a much softer line. They were saying the protests have a right to protest, even though they were saying things such as death to the supreme leader, which is a very risky thing to say in Iran, obviously. Um, but they were saying they have a right to protest, even rejecting the idea that they were working on behalf of foreign governments. I think one line that uh, an official from the Rouhani government said was that, well, perhaps some of them are, but most of them are out there because they're angry about their situation. It was quite clear that the government's strategy was to try to defuse the situation by acknowledging that there are legitimate grievances of the population. But also, I think, a political calculation on Rouhani's side that he saw that this is a leaderless uh, movement and that he would be able to co-opt it and actually use their energy against the conservatives. 
Since becoming president last January, Donald Trump has repeatedly threatened to withdraw the United States from the Iranian nuclear deal that was signed by his predecessor, Barack Obama. As of right now, Washington remains in the deal, but Parsi argues that the president's public vacillation has greatly harmed Iran's economy. The expectations of where the economy should have moved to as a result of the deal and the fact that those expectations were not um, materialized. If you take a look at Iran's economy on paper, it looks as if it's doing quite well. There's a growth of roughly six, six and a half percent. Well, that growth is almost entirely because of oil sales. During the sanctions period, Iran's oil sales were more than halved. And as a result of the deal, they're now capable of selling oil again. And it's probably the only area in which they have actually really been able to go back to the pre-sanctioned years. But oil sales do not create jobs. Investments create jobs. And as a result, you've had oil sales, but you have not had the job creation and the types of things that actually lead to people feeling that the economy is moving in a better direction. Just being able to sell the oil and growing 6% actually has not been something that ordinary people have felt in their pocketbooks. And unemployment have actually increased, particularly for young people and particularly for young women. It is at a very, very high rate. Now, why hasn't there been any job creation? Well, the job creation is primarily connected to investments. And there are plenty of projects and plenty of companies that have been very, very interested in going into the Iranian market. They have even signed agreements, but there's a problem. They cannot find financing because none of the major banks are willing to go in and finance these projects out of a fear that Donald Trump is going to kill the deal. Many of these projects are five, seven years long. And the banks, understandably, they're not charities, want to have some degree of security and certainty that the deal will be in place for that period of time so that they're not going to lose their money for investing and financing a project like that. But they can't even get four months of security because Donald Trump is constantly saying that he's going to rip up the deal. And right now his language is that he will do so. He will not renew the waivers. And as a result, it has really uh, ensured that uh, only a fraction of the investments that the government expected have actually materialized. Uh, and there's been, and, and you mentioned that the Iranians have now started to make noise that they may walk out of the deal. The specific language that the deputy foreign minister used when he was speaking at Chatham House was that if the banks don't come in, then mm -hmm. Iran has gained nothing from the deal, and then they will also start walking out. And fascinatingly enough, I think the protests essentially um, tipped the debate inside the White House in December. Because in January was supposed to be another deadline in which the president had to make up his mind whether he was gonna renew the waivers. The waivers are the things that inactivates the sanctions for another four months or so. And he's obligated to do so in order for the US to be in compliance with the deal. And many people, myself included, expected him not to renew at this time. But what happened is that inside the White House, the debate was that, you know what? your strategy of infusing uncertainty into the situation is already working because now you're seeing the protest in Iran, people are unhappy. All you need to do is just to continue to do what you're doing, which is to constantly make everyone guess, will you or will you not renew the waivers? Even Tillerson and Mattis have no clue what the decision is until the very day of that decision. So if you just continue to do it this way, you are 
imposing a de facto sanction, because uncertainty is a de facto sanction that is preventing businesses from coming in and is clearly creating economic problems in Iran. We're seeing that as a, uh, with, by virtue of these protests. Few observers believe that Iran's government is at risk of collapse, but a closer look at political happenings there reveal a country in the midst of change. On a more local level, at the city councils, the Guardian Council doesn't have the mandate or the capacity to get itself involved in all of those elections. There we see much more direct representation. And in the last election, and the city councils are important, they're the ones who elect the mayors, and mayors tend to be quite uh, powerful in Iran. Um, the, in the last election, the number of women who took seats in the city councils, I believe, tripled or quadrupled. Mm. In the main cities, Tabriz, Shiraz, Esfahan, Tehran, the reformists, not even the centrist with Rouhani, but the reformists, the green movement essentially, cleaned the slate, took every seat. Wow. In the city of Mashhad, which is a very conservative city, it's the city, home city of the supreme leader, it's the home city of the main conservative rival of Rouhani in the presidential elections, there was a woman who ran on a campaign of opposing the patriarchy. Her slogan was, elect more women. She won. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing building blocks of a much, much more democratic uh, system coming from inside society itself that is pushing slowly in that direction. Clearly, it's not a linear line. Clearly, they're suffering major setbacks here and there. But compare that to a lot of other societies in the Middle East, mm -hmm. I see far more of those building blocks, far more of a reason to believe that peaceful, gradual, controllable change can come precisely because of the values and because of the dynamics of the Iranian society. I don't see that, unfortunately, in many other places in the region right now. Thank you for listening to Asia Abridged. If you want to hear more, you can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Asia Society. Until next time, this is Matt Schiavenza. Mm-hmm.